follow me. Follow me. These are the two words Jesus used in the first century when he walked among us to invite those who who would be part of his ministry. He used these to invite them into a dynamic and life-changing relationship with himself. And these two words, follow me, these are the same two words Jesus holds out for us this morning. These are the same two words that he uses to still invite us into a dynamic and life-changing relationship with himself. But, but it's, it's easy, I think, to hear these two words, follow me, and, and to miss everything that's involved with them, to, to really miss what Jesus is getting at. We, we, we think of entourage or something like that. We, we just think of a simple game of, hey, let's tag along with Jesus. But no, this isn't a casual invitation. Let's look at a couple places in the New Testament where, where Jesus unpacks what it means to follow him. Let, let, let's see what's behind this phrase, because we don't want to miss it. If we're going to take his invitation seriously, we need to know some of what's behind it, right? And so, so in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, whoever wants to be my disciple, must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So, so we, we see the follow me language, right? But they're right alongside of it. We see packaged together with it is, is this call to deny self. There's this reversal of values baked into that. We, we're told to take up your cross daily and follow me. In the first century, when, when, when people heard Jesus say that, that would have brought a very vivid image to their mind. Because when you took up your cross in the first century, the, the picture that draws to mind is crucifixion, is death to self. And then, and then if that isn't enough, so we, we've got Luke 9, 23, in, in John chapter 12, verses 25 and 26, Jesus adds a little bit more to how we're supposed to understand this, this follow me invitation. Jesus says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world is going to keep it for eternal life. Do you see that same reversal of values? And then he says, whoever serves me must follow me. There's that language again, follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. Suddenly, this invitation to follow Jesus sounds like a whole lot higher of a calling than casual entourage-type relationship. And then when we kind of add how our culture views following somebody, it just, it just, it just makes the situation that much more of a crux-type issue. In our culture, we're, we're told all over the place, be a leader. That can be good. We're told, be a leader. We're told, if nothing else, blaze your own trail. At least be an individualist. <laughs> but be a follower? Who wants that? You don't see that on any t-shirts or anything like that. And yet, this is the same decision that those in the first century had to make. When they heard Jesus following him, they had to die to self. They had to choose to follow Jesus on his terms, 
suddenly we see that this invitation certainly is one of these crux-type issues. And so Jesus still invites us to follow him. But now we see that the cost to ourselves that, that, that goes with that, we, we see how that goes against the grain of our issues, goes against the grain of our culture, and we see how big of a deal this really is. And yet, what I want to remind us all of this morning is that there are people that we read about in the New Testament that, that knew this cost that Jesus is talking about that chose to follow him. There are people throughout 2,000 years of church history that heard this invitation from Jesus to follow him. They, they knew the cost that went along with that. And there are men and women from every social class and educational background that chose to follow Jesus. There are people all around the world right now on Sunday morning people of every tribe and nation and people and language, people that, that know about the costs that go along with following Jesus, and they have chosen to follow him. We are here this morning because a whole lot of us in this room are aware of the costs that go along with following Jesus. We're, we're aware that we're not the king of our universe anymore, that Jesus is. We're aware of that, and we have chosen to follow Jesus. The right question to ask is why? Knowing this cost that, that goes with following Jesus, why would anyone choose to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow? Or, or the way we usually ask the question is, is this, is following Jesus worth it? The answer that I want to hold out for all of us this morning is yes. Some of you are, are on the outside of Christianity looking in. I want to tell you that following Jesus is worth it. We're going to talk about why here in just a minute. But yes, it's worth it. But then there are lots of people here this morning that have been following Jesus for a really long time. You might be going through a really difficult week or you might be going through a really difficult 10 years. And you're asking that same question, is following Jesus worth it? Yes, it's worth it. Let me share with you why. The answer is yes, because of what we get in return. We get Jesus. We get the all-surpassing knowledge of the one who is sustaining the universe, is the way it says in Colossians 1. We get a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is why no cost is out of bounds. The value of knowing Jesus far outweighs the cost of following him. That's what I want to hold out in front of us this morning. The, the value of knowing Jesus far outweighs the cost of following him. It's like this. When, when I was dating my wife, Carrie, uh, I, I couldn't be near her enough. And uh, clarification, because she's sitting here, it, it's still that way. We still enjoy each other's company. That wasn't just when we were dating. So have to be sure to get that on the recording, you know. Um, but, 
But I, 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 we, we couldn't be near each other enough. And so we were dating in college, and there was one time, one extended break, spring break or something like that, when she was going to be back home in her parents' place where she grew up in the Kearney area for, for longer than just kind of a weekend to do some laundry. It was a week or whatever it was. And, and that was too long for me to be away from her. So I'm not a super impulsive guy, but, but there I was, sophomore in college, I'm like, I'm going to hop in the car and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go surprise Carrie in Gibbon, Nebraska, where she's from. So I hop in the car and I drive to Gibbon. Now, keep in mind, I don't know where Carrie lives. I, I've never been to her house in Gibbon. I just know, I just, Gibbon's not that big of a town. I just know she's there somewhere. How hard can it be? So, so I drive three hours from Omaha to Gibbon, get off at the Gibbon exit of the interstate, pull up to a gas station, go up to this thing, this artifact called a payphone, since I didn't have a cell phone then, and, and I call Carrie to even see if she's there. I didn't know if she was going to be home. Thankfully, she was at her parents' place. She picks up. She's like, oh, yeah, I'm like, I happen to be in Gibbon. You want to hang out? You want to see each other? She's like, okay. And so, so it was great. She came, drove out to the gas station, picked me up, I followed her back to her parents' place, and, and we had a fun evening together. Her whole family was there, so got to have supper together with her sisters and brother. I think they were all there. We watched a movie probably or just played a board game with her nieces and nephews after that. I, I was there for three or four hours is all, and then I went back to Omaha. Now, the evening was awesome. Why? Because I got to see Carrie. That was the focus of me going there. I, I, I wasn't counting the costs of, okay, I'm going to spend more time on the road than I am actually with her. I didn't think about that. I wasn't kind of calculating gas mileage and like saying, man, she's going to owe me big when she gets back to Omaha. She's going to owe me like whatever that, whatever that amount is. I wasn't thinking that. I wasn't thinking about what if she's not even there and I need to drive all the way back. The thing that was motivating me to, to go through all of that cost was I got to be with Carrie. In the same way, we get to be with Jesus Christ. We get to be in living relationship with him. The value of knowing Christ far outweighs the costs of following Christ. And what's so life-changing about this is, is that it reminds us that, that the focus is on Christ, not the costs. Again, during my trip to Gibbon, I wasn't tallying costs because I got to be with, with the woman who is now my wife. The same is true for following Christ. Our focus should be on him. This doesn't mean there's no cost, but it puts it in proper perspective because when we see Christ as our greatest good, anything that goes along with following him becomes small compared to that. The sacrifices that are part of following Jesus, they aren't really cost to us. Instead, the sacrifices that we make become a chance for us to show our devotion to Jesus, our worship to Jesus. They become a very tangible way for us to say, following Jesus is better than fill in the blank. The value of knowing Christ far surpasses the costs that are involved with following him. We need to remind ourselves of that often, that our focus should be on Christ. And in John chapter 12 this morning, we meet someone who models this sort of devotion to Christ. 
this sort of devotion that's more, that's more concerned with, with, with knowing Jesus, with worshiping him and honoring him than it is with any of the costs that are involved. So let's go to John chapter 12. Let's meet this gal. Her name is Mary of Bethany. And let's let her example stir our own conviction that the value of knowing Christ is so much better than the costs that accompany following him. So John chapter 12, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. I encourage you to follow along with me. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had just raised from the dead. That's what happens in verse 11. So this is just days. This is just right after the most miraculous, probably, of Jesus' miracles up to this point in John. Here, in verse 2, we see a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha, who's one of Lazarus' sisters, Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with Jesus. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard. This is an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, he objected. He says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? This perfume was worth a year's wages. Some of your Bibles will say 300 denarii. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, Judas used to help himself to what was put into it. And I love what Jesus says. He says, leave her alone. Jesus replied, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. This whole scene revolves around verse 3. The, the vividness of the story makes it easy for us to kind of close our eyes and picture ourselves there. So what I want to do, I want to take just a few minutes and, and paint a picture of what's going on here, going on here in verse 3 and this whole passage so, so we really appreciate everything that's happening. The room is full of people gathered around a great meal. Martha always makes sure of that. The atmosphere is one of celebration. Lazarus had just been raised from the dead. And then Jesus, the one who raised him, is there as well. The room is electric. It's almost hard to hear because of all the noise. There are, of course, the million questions people have for Lazarus. People are shouting questions across the table. Lazarus, what was it like to be dead for a few days? Was it tough to come back? Tell us about it. Everybody wants to hear Lazarus speak and share his story, his experience. And then there are, there are all the questions people have for Jesus. Jesus, how did you raise somebody who is obviously dead just by calling him out of the grave? Jesus, did you know that right now, just a few miles away in Jerusalem, there's a whole lot of religious authorities that, that are headhunting you, that are looking for a way to arrest you? Jesus, the Passover's coming up. Are you, are you going up there for that? Jesus, who are you? And then there's Martha. Martha is in her element as a servant, as hostess. 
She's busy barking out orders to make sure everything is flowing smoothly, to make sure bowls are full of food, to clear away empty dishes and bring in, bring in new plates of food. So, so the room is full of noise. Amidst all of this, no one notices Mary slip in until, until the smell of perfume overpowers the smell of supper. And suddenly the room starts to quiet down until it is dead silent. And, and there is Mary washing Jesus' feet with, with a jar of perfume. But, 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 but when we look at Lazarus and Martha, we know this isn't just any perfume. No, this is the perfume they'd been talking about. This is the perfume that, that they had saved up a whole year's worth of wages to purchase. Now, now, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, they were from a wealthy family, but that's still a lot of money. And then if, if that wasn't enough, this is the perfume that they had to buy from the traveling caravan that was coming up through, through northern India uh, in Nepal. This perfume that Mary was using, this perfume could not be replaced. And she was just pouring it on Jesus' feet. Didn't she know what she was doing? And then on top of that, there's the shock value of, of Mary taking this humiliating posture of a servant. It's the servants, Mary, that wash people's feet. And then, and then on top of that, Mary is completely unaware, it seems, of this social disgrace of a woman letting her hair down in public to wash Jesus' feet. Doesn't Mary know how people around Bethany are going to whisper about what she's been doing for the next few days? Doesn't Mary care what people think? The room is, is completely silent for minutes That's, that seem like a whole hour. Partly, everyone is, is just stunned by Mary's bold and extravagant and ostentatious display. But, but partly, they don't want to be the first one to speak. They, they want Jesus to speak up. They want Jesus to respond. They're waiting to hear what Jesus is going to say. But it's not Jesus that interrupts the silence first. It's Judas. Looking back on things from our vantage point now, as readers of this story, we, we can put together some of the costs that, that Mary made in this story. We, we see that Mary had, had the financial cost of this jar of perfume. The, the passage says this is worth a year's wages, 300 denarii. If you put that into, today, into today's terms using minimum, base as our, minimum wage as our base and then pulling that out for over a year, that's about $15,000. This isn't a $25 bottle of perfume you can buy at the store. This is expensive perfume. So, so there's financial cost. But then there's the social cost of Mary taking the position of a servant and washing Jesus' feet. There's the social disgrace that's part of a woman letting her hair down in public back in the first century. That wasn't something women did in public. So, so there's costs that are involved with this. But you know what? I would, I would guess confidently 
that none of those things were anywhere near the front of Mary's mind as she was worshiping Jesus by washing his feet with this perfume. No, Mary's focus, it wasn't on any of these costs. Mary's focus was on Jesus. And the sacrifices she she makes here in John chapter 12, they're not costs. They're expressions of worship. They're a chance for her to say, Jesus is infinitely better than my social standing and the cost of this jar of perfume. Before we move on, I want to make sure that, 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 we, that we see what Mary is doing, but we also see that there's a, a second character in this story that, that we don't want to miss what, what's going on with him. This is Judas. If Mary's the example to follow, Judas is the example to avoid. Judas, Judas is the first one to speak up after Mary's display of devotion. And when he speaks up, it's an objection. He says, why is Mary doing this? Doesn't she know that 300 denarii that can go a long way towards helping the poor. Now, if we were just looking at that question through a completely pragmatic lens, Judas's objection makes a lot of sense. $15,000 can go a long way towards helping people. But Judas wasn't saying this because he was concerned about the poor. This is where the insight that verse 6 gives us is so important. Let me read that verse again. Let's look at John chapter 12, verse 6. Jesus says, Judas didn't say this because he was concerned about the poor. He said this because he was a thief. He was keeper of the money bag and used to help himself to what was put into it. In other words, Judas was thinking about himself. He saw $15,000 get poured on Jesus' feet, and that meant $15,000 that he couldn't put in the money bag and then siphon off some of that for himself. The contrast here between Mary and Judas couldn't be sharper. Do you see it? Mary is following Jesus for who he is. Judas is following Jesus because of what he'd get out of it. That's convicting, by the way. Both both Mary and Judas had been in, in really close proximity to Jesus for probably a couple years. And if you looked at just their external actions, that they would have been almost indistinguishable. But really following Jesus is about way more than the externals. At its heart, the crux of the matter is that following Jesus is about the posture of our heart and the motives driving our actions. Judas wanted to follow Jesus for himself. Mary was following Jesus because of Jesus. Do you see that contrast? Who are we going to be? Let's follow Jesus because of who he is. Let's follow Mary's example because we know where Judas ends up. If, if the needle of our life kind of starts pointing in that direction, we can end up in a scary spot really quickly. So, so the question we want to be asking right now is, how do, we follow, how do we follow Mary? How do we make sure we don't end up to be a Judas? How do we follow everything that Mary sets for us in terms of the value of knowing Jesus is worth it? Let's look at two things, two practical ways 
that I want to hold out for us. First, to value Jesus. It starts by just pinpointing truths about Jesus Christ that fuel our devotion. Pinpointing truths about Jesus Christ that fuel our devotion. At a high level, the place this starts is with just knowing Jesus. Reading our Bibles, the Gospels, and and the Old Testament and the rest of our New Testaments to learn what it can teach us about Jesus. About what the Gospels can say about his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, and what that means for us. How the Old Testament shows us our need for a Savior and who that Messiah is going to be. That passage from Isaiah Rob read earlier this morning. How the rest of our New Testaments unpack what it looks like to follow Jesus and what it means to, to live in light of everything he has done for us. It starts with, with, with knowing that. But then this isn't just to accumulate facts. This isn't for, for the game of trivial pursuit we do on Sunday nights. We learn about Jesus so that we can treasure him above everything else. Because what we figure out when we read through Scripture is that, is that the people who followed Jesus in Scripture, the people that really followed him, treasured him above everything else, even in some cases, even more than their lives itself. That is how we want to treasure Jesus. And so, so here's where we talk about the importance of not just knowing Jesus, but, but having our hearts captured by knowing him. And guys, whenever you start talking about hearts and emotions and feelings, some of us just check out. Like Carrie's, like my wife, she's crying at a commercial we're watching. I'm like, hey, can you get me some more nachos types? I mean, I'm just not that emotional of a guy. And most men aren't, that at least I've associated with stuff like that. Some guys are, whatever. That's great, you know. But, but, but most guys aren't. But, but what I want to show all of us is that just like Mary holds out an example for all of us, this isn't just Mary. This is a dude thing as well. The Apostle Paul, if you want a man on mission, a man who had the scars to show for following Jesus, Paul was it, you know? And at the same time, his heart was as captured as Mary's with the value of knowing Jesus Christ. The passage to go to for this is Philippians chapter 3. So here's, here's the Apostle Paul. If you want a guy's perspective, here it is. The Apostle, uh, the Apostle Paul writes in uh, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 7, is where we're at. He says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. So, so right there, we, we've heard Paul talk about loss a couple times in a short span of space. Paul gets the fact that there are costs that go along with following Jesus. Paul gets the fact that our lives should look different in noticeable ways because of following Jesus. Paul's life is 180 degrees different because of following Jesus. So, so he gets the fact that there's loss. But he says, I consider everything a loss compared to what? The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For, whose, for his sake, I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And he says, I I want to know Christ. He doesn't say I'm supposed to know Christ. 
He doesn't say that's the, that's the next logical sequence of things, is to know Christ. He says, I want to know Christ. My heart is engaged in wanting to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Paul's heart was captured by Christ. Brookside, that is the treasure that we pursue, that, that, that I hold out for myself and for all of us. Let's have Christ as our greatest treasure. Christianity isn't primarily an academic pursuit. It's not just a set of external behaviors. At its heart, Christianity is about a new heart that treasures Jesus above everything else. You see, Paul would stack hands with Mary of Bethany in a second in agreeing with everything we've looked at this morning. The cost of following Jesus pales in comparison to the value of knowing him. And the reason Paul would say that without hesitating is because Christ had captured Paul's heart. Paul knew who he was. And in the midst of that, Christ came to save Paul from himself. Christ invited Paul to join him, essentially saying, follow me. And Paul said, done. Because of the love and the grace that he had been shown in Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ. So the first application is just to know Jesus and let that fuel our devotion, our affection for him. Second application is just that we make tangible sacrifices that keep the betterness of Jesus firmly in place. Here I just want to ask all of us a couple questions. I'm not trying to get all up in your grill or anything like that. What I'm doing is I'm just trying to help all of us, myself included, legitimately see that if there, if there are costs that go with following Jesus, that, that looks like something. That's going to take tangible expression in our lives. So, so here are some questions I've been asking myself over these last few days looking forward to this morning. I, I, I would challenge you to be asking yourselves these same questions. First, if, if Jesus Christ is going to be the tra- greatest treasure of your life, and if you pull that out six weeks from now, what would that mean for how you conduct your bank account activity? If, if in six weeks from now, if you're going to say, yep, I can point to this in my bank account activity that shows that Jesus Christ is better than anything else, following him is better than anything else, what would that look like? Another question, what about your schedule? If knowing Jesus is, is the greatest treasure of your life, six weeks from now, what might that look like for your schedule? For your schedule personally, but for, for, for moms and dads and grandparents as well, what about your schedule as a family? What, what sorts of times are you going to protect to make sure that the flurry of things that I know we can all get involved in don't crowd out Jesus as our greatest treasure individually and together with the people that we live with under our roof? Here's the convicting one for me. Next question. What about our physical posture during worship? 
during, during our music, when we're expressing the worth of Jesus Christ ourselves, when we're responding to everything about who he is with these great lyrics that Rob and his team hold out for us each week, what about our physical posture what would need to change to show that we are treasuring Christ more than what the people around us are thinking about us? That's convicting for me. I'm kind of that reserved guy that has my hands in my pockets. I'll take a sip of coffee. But, but if, if the clouds rolled back like a scroll, according to the song, and if Jesus appeared today in all of his glory, would the posture that I receive him with then be anything close to the posture that I worship him with now? But when we're gathered together on Sunday mornings, but also privately, when I'm worshiping Jesus through prayer in the mornings or in the evenings before bed, what might treasuring Jesus mean for our posture, our physical posture? Because if you really value Jesus most, there will be, there will be sacrifices that go along with, with how we answer each of these questions. There will be the social sacrifices. We, we can't control how people around us are going to respond when we start to treasure Christ most. There, there, there will be financial repercussions. There will be schedule repercussions. But hear me say, hear, hear Mary say, and hear Paul say that those sacrifices are nothing because we get Jesus. He is worth it. As we've been talking about the, the worthiness of of Jesus this morning and, and how he is better than anything else, how can we not end this morning by responding in worship? Because what I want to call us to all right now is, is just doing that heart check sort of thing where we say, what's the greatest treasure of my heart? Is Jesus the greatest good in my life? For some of you, maybe this is the first time you're asking that question. But for others of you, this is a great question. Even if you've been following Jesus for a long time, you keep coming back to it. Because I get how things can crowd that out. Yesterday, I spent all afternoon with my dad tearing apart part of a vanity because we'd gotten water in our basement. And there was like this behemoth of mold growing down there. So like I'm down there with a sawzall doing all this sort of stuff. I probably still have mold growing in my head somewhere. I'm probably radiating green gamma radiation stuff. So if I turn into the Hulk, watch out. You don't want to see me angry sort of thing, you know. Uh, um, but, 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 but I get how, how just the, the, the hurry and the hustle and bustle of life can, can compete with Jesus as our greatest treasure. But that's why taking these intentional times to commit ourselves to that or to recommit ourselves to that are so important. I'm a pastor. I, I, I work here all the time. But if I don't take this sort of time intentionally and recommit myself to it, it's, it's sad how, how long can go can before I really say, Jesus, you're the greatest treasure of my life. And here's what that needs to look like. So, so this morning, as Rob leads us, Rob and the team lead us in this last song, make this song the response of your heart. For some of you, this might be the first time you're responding positively to the invitation of Jesus to follow him. That the pennies finally dropped and you, and you understand Jesus is worth it. 
I'm, I, I'm going I'm to respond to the invitation. If that's you, sing this song with all of your heart and then talk, talk with me or, or, or better, talk with the person who brought you here this morning. Share your decision to follow Jesus with them. But for all of us, even those of us who are Jesus followers, let's, let's use this song as a chance to, to say Jesus is our greatest treasure. So Brookside, let's worship.